One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. This is from a good friend of mine, actually, and a good friend of the podcast. He's a, he's a fan, and this is what he sent me last night. Just listening to the garbage news on RTE about the Irish budget, a list of scattergun handouts to a range of people and areas, which increases the amount of transfers from workers to non-workers. Now, that's a perspective on the budget, Jim. There have been several others, but what do you think of that one? Uh, yeah, I find it difficult to disagree with that, actually. Um the it was a 4.7 billion package um 4.2 billion was expenditure and 500 million in tax reductions which basically entailed um a small widening of tax bans and the various credits um the there was a, a massive social welfare package uh, there's no doubt about that and um it was very much a scattergun approach. And in fact, I lost the will to live during Michael McGrath's speech. Um, it was a really typical sort of Fianna Fáil budget of old. There was bits for everybody in the audience, um, very much a scattergun approach. And um, as I would have predicted before the budget, I would say this morning that we will all wake up the morning after the budget very slightly better off, but nobody significantly better off. Um, but very definitely, there was very little in it for, um, as Leo Varadka once described him, the people who get up early in the morning. Um, it was very much uh, a budget that was focused on um, social welfare giveaways. So, yeah, I, I actually would pretty much agree with that perspective. And um, if you look at many of the other elements of the budget, it was very much a scattergun approach as well. So very, very definitely, Chris. What do you think? Well, the thing about it, of course, is that that's in a way a question about the political 
stance of the budget. I noticed there's an interesting piece out of the Irish Times this morning from Harry McGee, in which he contrasts it with the Sinn Féin approach. He describes the, the budget, budget 2022, as very much a centrist budget. Perhaps that's a, a, slightly, less, a slightly less pejorative way of describing the scattergun approach, every, every, everything for, or something for everyone in the audience approach that um, you and my friend have, have described. But it's the politics that, that interests me, because if you come at it from that political perspective, a centrist budget would have done pretty much what the guys did yesterday. Uh, and it's what you should expect from a centrist coalition. McGee points out that if you'd had a, a Sinn Féin budget, they would have spent much more money. So there would have been a much bigger uh, spending package than we got yesterday. There would have been no tax cuts whatsoever. And in fact, there would have been tax rises on anybody earning over €100,000. Uh, Two billion of tax rises, actually all aimed at high earners. So that would have uh, been a very different budget. It would have been a much more higher spending budget and a higher rather than lower tax budget. So it depends on your political perspective. And I suspect that the spending increases would have been concentrated far more narrowly than they were yesterday. Do you agree with that perspective, Jim, that the way in which we're framing it this morning is very much from that political perspective? Yeah, it, it, it is, I guess, from that sort of centrist political perspective. But still, um, starting off on the comment you read out at the beginning, you know, people on social welfare actually benefited most in the budget. OK, um, not in a huge way, but they were the biggest beneficiaries of this budget. And from a political perspective, are those people ever going to vote for Fine Gael anyway? Um, my answer is probably not. So is this a budget that will prevent Pierce Doherty presenting the budget in two or three years' time? No, I don't believe it is. I, I think voters will look at this and I think it will do absolutely nothing to narrow the opinion poll lead that Sinn Féin have in the polls at the moment. And this is sort of typical Fine Gael over many years. Um, they rarely look after the people that actually vote for him and that are more likely to vote for him. You know, I, I, I guess... I. I put my hands up and say that um, over many years looking at the political parties and I do try to analyse, you know, what political parties are about and um, Fine Gael would always have sort of ticked my box relative to the rest in the sense that economically they in theory are slightly right of centre and socially they're a little bit left of centre and that sort of economic and political perspective um, suits my particular um, view on life, okay. And um, but I but I look at that budget, Jess, and I didn't really see a lot in there that, uh, as a potential Fine Gael voter in another election, that would inspire me to vote for the party. To be honest, so you you talked about the social welfare and the, those recipients of, of social welfare who benefited by most, just about in the budget yesterday, never voting for Fine Gael. So therefore, you're saying it was not a politically astute budget. So we'll park that for a moment and maybe come back to it. So that's that's the first thing I, I take from what you're saying. It was not politically astute. But Jim, was it from an economic perspective, the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Is it right to be giving social welfare recipients uh, this kind of um, budgetary largesse? I guess somebody like Sean Healy would say it wasn't enough. I guess somebody like Sinn Féin would say it's not enough. And others would have a different perspective. 
from an economic perspective, what do you think about the transfers that we now make uh, within the Irish economy? Well, Chris, that was a pretty significant spending package overall yesterday. Okay, and if you look at the trajectory of the public finances out to 2025, you know, while the budget deficit um, is targeted to decline over that period, that decline is not as a result of the control of public expenditure. It is as a result of two things. One is projected reasonably strong growth in the economy, you know, which brings the budget deficit and the government debt as a percentage of GDP down anyway. The second piece then is expenditure. I mean, there is very, very significant expenditure committed over the next five years, even at this early juncture. So the improvement of the public finances is because, as I say, of tax revenues rising strongly, GDP growing in the economy. But there is no attempt being made to control public spending. So in 2025, if the trajectory that's outlined by the Department of Finance yesterday were to come to pass, well, Ireland would still be um, a highly indebted country, arguably um, in, in the current environment, I guess, um, politically, there's no choice other than to try and at least send out the message that you're trying to look after the less well off who are being hit by the increased cost of living. But will it do much to uh, boost the productivity of the economy, to boost our long term growth potential? Um, I think probably not. I, I have always favoured, Chris, in budgets, a, a much narrower. I would like to see, well, in fact, Ideally, I would like to see no budget speech at all, because as we've discussed on this podcast, I certainly believe that having this day out for the two ministers, you know, is a total waste of time. You'd be much better off, I think, you know, letting fiscal policy develop as the year progresses, which is what government should do, in my view. So I, I just don't like this, um, the, this big charade of budget day. Uh, but 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 that aside, I would always much prefer to see, as I say, if there was going to be a budget speech, let it be five minutes and let's target one specific area that you're going to make a meaningful difference to by investing money in. Um, and, and I guess to, to me yesterday, one of the areas that needed to be addressed more aggressively was on the climate change. I mean, I look at Ireland's climate change obligations um, under the climate bill, we have committed to reducing emissions by 51% by 2030 compared to 2018 levels. There was nothing in that budget yesterday that would push Ireland further in that, that direction. For example, if you look at the changes that were made to uh, the vehicle registration tax, the VRT treatment of cars, for example, you know, one of the key parts of that 51% emission reduction strategy is to electrify the fleet as quickly as possible. There was nothing in that budget yesterday that would drive the electrification of the fleet. And, and why I say that is there were changes, there's 20 VRT bans in the system. And what they did yesterday was to increase the rates for the sort of bigger, higher emission cars. And that's fine because you can use the price mechanism to try and discourage people from buying those sorts of cars, okay? But if you do that, you've also, on the other side of the equation, got to push the electrification agenda. 
I mean, the reality is that the average age of a car in Ireland is around 10 years. and It's 11 for diesel. It's about nine for petrol. Somewhere in around 10 is the average, okay? And by definition, older cars are typically higher emission cars. So what you need to do is to get the higher emission cars off the road. And the problem, of course, is that if you are driving a 10-year-old car, the notion that you would turn around and buy a new EV is ridiculous because the financial bridge for the majority of people would be way too significant to do that. So what you needed to see in the budget yesterday, if they were serious about it, was a whole series of graduated incentives down through the car chain to try and get people driving a 10-year-old car to trade down to a seven-year-old car, the seven-year-old car people to a three-year-old and the three-year-old onto a new EV. And gradually, by using incentives, and you've got to use incentives, it will not happen without incentives. You have got to encourage people to um, move towards electrification. There was nothing in the budget yesterday to achieve that. They took a stick approach to um, the higher emission cars, but they didn't offer any carrot at the other side. And it would require a lot of resources to do that. Well, surely but, it would also require a lot more power stations. I was just going to say that, sorry. Yeah, that's that's the point I was then going to make. The other problem, of course, with the electrification. And listen, I didn't come up with these targets, so don't be blaming me, okay? I didn't say we should... Be it for me to blame you for anything, Jim. <laughs> I didn't say we should be reducing by 51%. That, that was a government strategy. But if government puts that sort of legally binding target in place, uh, which I agree with, incidentally, but they need to make sure they have the mechanisms in place. And I've described, you know, the carpool, what the situation is there. And then the other aspects of it, EVs are obviously very expensive relative to other cars. So, you know, despite the five grand um, grant that's in place for EVs that was extended yesterday, which I think is a good idea, but despite that, EVs are still very expensive. And then there is the matter of um, the infrastructure to charge those cars. Uh, we don't have the infrastructure. And, and there, there is no serious attempt being made to create that infrastructure. Uh, and, and then, of course, there is the issue around um, the generation of that electricity to charge those cars. Do we have the capacity? So, listen, Chris, what I'm really saying is I don't like the scattergun approach. I would much prefer to see a much more targeted focused approach on certain areas that are should be given priority and we did not see that in the budget yesterday but i accept fully what you said and and what harry mcgee i guess is reflecting that this is a politically it's a politically motivated budget before we get back to that political question which i think fascinates me the most at the moment just to, to round off the environmental point that you're making there my own view is that you're absolutely right to criticize the way in which we're doing it but I think implicit in what you're saying is kind of sort of an explanation of why they didn't go further in the way that you wanted to. Because one of the things that will happen if we suddenly electrified the fleet is that government revenues would collapse from fuel duties. And so I don't think they've figured out yet how they're going to replace the hole in public finances that will be caused by people not buying petrol and diesel. That's yeah, but, but, but Chris, if they don't hit their legally binding targets they're going to end up being fined anyway. So- well, yeah, we can see that there's a, there's a problem that needs to be sorted out before they actually do this. And I would suggest that this, this is not a point about Ireland in particular, but more about all countries that have these 
ultimate net zero target is that you don't stand much of a chance of doing it without something nuclear being in your power generation sources. Um, I contrast the Irish development plan with the French one that was announced only yesterday by Macron. It was smaller in scale in terms of money, but uh, there were all sorts of things like robotics, artificial intelligence, and, and very much industrial development um, in a modern sense, uh, but also small-scale nuclear plants. Um, France still pretty much going down that route, and I think France is one of those countries that will achieve net zero because of it, partly because of its nuclear power generating capacity any country like germany that doesn't have any nuclear generating capacity or ireland um is, is going to struggle but that that's a that's a different debate getting back to the politics the the interesting thing for me is is whether or not it does anything politically positive does it get them any votes um so you can ask from an economics perspective was it well targeted or not was it was it a good budget or a bad budget but you what I'm getting from you very much is that it won't buy them any votes. Because one of the things that I think about Ireland, in contrast to where I am at the moment, the UK or the United States, is that because of what the government does, with it, let's face it, with this scattergun approach, with all of these different transfers and the generosity it does have, relatively speaking, at least towards those people on social welfare, it is a, Ireland is a society much more at peace with itself than we are here in the UK, and in particular in the United States. You don't have the great divides. You do have division, but you don't have the great divides uh, caused by all sorts of things that we have in, in, in the UK and the US. And I think there, there's a lot of very complicated reasons for that. But I think one of them is that that peace that you have with yourself is bought at the cost of great transfers between people in work and people out of work, people with money and people without. And it's the price that you pay for peace. If you want to live in gated communities behind barbed wire, then create societies like, I'm exaggerating to make the point, like the United States. So there are ethical and moral reasons why you have a high transfer society. And I think there are probably self-interested ones. And that's the heart of my point or my question really is that even though we might decry the scattergun approach, even though we might think it's incredibly generous uh, social welfare packages in every budget these days, it, do it does have very positive outcomes for the middle classes who are actually stumping up this money, does it not? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it may deliver that sort of relative stability you describe. But if you look at the opinion polls and you look at you know, the party that's 10 points ahead in the opinion polls at the moment, um, based on my understanding of their economic policies, um, as, as somebody who sort of, uh, you know, do, does get up early in the morning, um, I work hard, uh, I try to earn as much money as I can and so on. So it would scare the living daylights out of me because um, despite all of those social transfers, uh, the center is in the political center is in serious trouble at the moment in this country, and um, if you end up with a Sinn Fein government, um, I think it would make Irish society a hell of a lot more divisive. So, despite despite the approach you describe, which I agree with, is it achieving the longer term political stability and lack of rancor that we have at the moment? I don't believe it is. Well, that's so the I, I think we're only a few years behind the UK, actually, and the States. Yeah, that, that for me is the most interesting part of all this, because clearly Sinn Féin have this extraordinary lead in the, in the opinion polls, its, its biggest ever. 
And I think from from that economics finance perspective, um, it's quite clear how, at least in part, they've achieved that lead. They bought it because they they say that they would spend an awful lot more money than the coalition. The people that don't matter for Sinn Féin, the ones that would never vote for them, people who earn a lot of money, uh, would would pay for it. And on top of that, they are committed, which is ironic for a left-wing party, to abolishing certain wealth taxes. Yeah, extraordinary. Notably the, the, the property tax. And they, you know, for a party that presumably would like to pretend that it has environmental credentials... They have also, they're also opposed to the €7.50 increase in the carbon tax that was introduced yesterday. So it, 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 Sinn Féin, is, that, that package of measures that I've just described amounts to me to, to naked populism and saying, you know, if you vote for us, we will give you more money and we will tax somebody else to give it to you. And you and I might think that that is awful, that is dreadful, that is pure populism. That, that's the economist definition of populism. But these, of course, the interesting thing is it appears to be working. Yes, it is working. Ab- absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Chris, I sat through yesterday uh, a webinar you did with PwC uh, immediately after the budget. And um, you, you made a really interesting point about the National Development Plan and about the capacity of Ireland to deliver that National Development Plan. and you you know you honed in on the lack of sort of support for the SME or the indigenous part of the Irish economy in the budget yesterday, uh, which I would agree with. Could you elaborate on your thoughts on that? Thanks, Jim. The the National Development Plan, um, as you I think have, have both said on this podcast and written on on our Substack site, it has some laudable aims, and that if it comes to pass in the way that it promises to deliver. Uh, Ireland becomes a much better place to work and live and play. Uh, so, it, let, let, so let, let's frame the remarks around that. Uh, but the the thing that niggled at me is that there's an awful lot of construction, there's an awful lot of building, there's an awful lot of stuff that has to be delivered by the National Development Plan. And the question naturally arise, arose in my mind, well, who's going to do all of this? Where are the businesses, the firms that are going to build the roads and all the other stuff that has to be done to develop the National Development Plan? And that just led me to think, well, okay, there's an assumption that those businesses are either there already or that they will come into being as we implement the plan. And of course, that ain't necessarily so. Uh, One of the things that might happen if those businesses are in short supply is that all that happens is we get huge cost inflation and that the resources in, you know, used by the National Development Plan go, go up in smoke or in, in terms of in, in, in higher prices. So that just led me to think, well, what, what is in the plan that would ensure value for money for the taxpayer? What is in, in the plan to ensure that there are no massive cost overruns? And relatedly, what is in the plan that thinks about where are the businesses that will be getting all this business from the government. That led me to go back to that point that you and I have made for, gosh, for as long as we've been alive, Jim, is, is that we're in the economic strategy of Ireland, the budgetary stance yesterday, and, and indeed other economic initiatives, where is the encouragement of indigenous industry? Because we do have a very unbalanced economy. The international sector actually probably won't be the, the sector that delivers the necessary business stuff uh, the firms, the kind of businesses that form the 
multinational sector, the tech companies, the pharmaceutical companies in particular, are not the ones that will be building the roads and the houses and the hospitals and the schools and the ports, are they? So it just worries me that, that they're not enough, as always, it's a perennial bleat, is being done to both encourage uh, SMEs and more generally the indigenous economy and to do something about this imbalance. Because Ireland is a very imbalanced economy between the domestic and the foreign. And the, the foreign sector is doing spectacularly well, as it has done for many years now. And the domestic, is it fair to say, is just kind of doing all right? No more than that? Yeah, well, I, I would always have regarded particularly the SME part of the domestic, which is the dominant part of the domestic, um, is never given any real assistance. Um, it, there's a sort of a view, well, let it to itself and it'll happen. OK, and that is obviously not good enough. It, it, it does need a much more proactive approach. Um, I have believed for some time that we need to set up an IDA or an Enterprise Ireland with a specific focus on the SME sector because, um, okay, the IDA's role is to attract foreign direct investment into Ireland. Enterprise Ireland's role is to help Indigenous companies develop export potential. But not every Indigenous company um, has the capability or has the wherewithal to develop an export capacity. So I don't believe there's any real focus on those SMEs that are not in export markets uh, that sell into the indigenous market, but that perhaps would like to build um, an export potential eventually because that the pathway of development for most SMEs to get from the S to the M to the large part, and it doesn't happen much in Ireland, but the pathway there is you master your domestic market and then you start to build export markets. But if you look at, it tends to happen in reverse here. I mean, I was looking closely at the health tech sector recently and the health tech sector is a sector made up of companies that are basically in the technology end of the delivery of healthcare okay using artificial intelligence data science um to try and improve the efficiency of the of the healthcare delivery okay with the ultimate aim of improving patient outcomes which should be the ultimate aim of the healthcare system okay but the procurement process for example is stacked so heavily against small companies in that sector and indeed the same in any other sector. I am an SME and I recently looked at a public procurement um, and, and there's no way in the world I as an SME could apply for it uh, because the conditions are just so onerous that it's stacked against them. So we need to get real about looking after the SME sector and the economy. We need to get real about creating a professional qualification for SME owner managers, you know, to give them the skills they require to become just more than a provider of the good or service that they provide is to give them the ability to scale up, to grow their domestic market, grow external markets, engage in innovation, master digital marketing, all of that stuff. Um, that's why we need, in my view, an IDA type organization specifically focused on the SME sector and we don't have it. So I think the SME sector is by and large ignored in this country. And looking at the budget yesterday, there was nothing in there that as an SME owner, um, I'd be terribly happy with. You know, yeah. So yeah. It's, again, it's the politics of that that interests me. Of course, the, you know, doing stuff that makes 
abundant economic sense for the SME sector that would benefit ultimately over the long haul, maybe not, and maybe not too long, everybody in Ireland. Because if we had a healthy indigenous, a healthier indigenous economy, everybody benefits. Yeah, Chris, ninety nine point eight percent of companies in this country numerically are SMEs. Yeah, but there's again the political point, Jim. If they were to introduce a budget for SMEs, would there be any votes in it? And can you imagine what the Shinners would say? Well, absolutely. But that there's, yeah, well, like. I guess we we'll never married this political economy piece. You know, it's it's. It, I I find it extremely frustrating. W- one of the things that um, interested me in, in the budget yesterday was I was looking at the five year projections for lots of different things, and obviously um, we've discussed this many times. Five year projections for anything is a waste of time. But it was interesting actually that looking at the corporation tax take, we took in eleven point eight billion last year, which was a record high. This year we're targeting around 13.8 billion which will obviously be another record high and um, by 2025 um the projection is that we'll be collecting over 15 billion in corporation tax and in 2023 the tax changes that were agreed to last week are likely to take effect in some form okay we still don't know what form because we have the issue of US Congress to work through we have next year how the EU will transpose these this new tax regime on EU countries. So there's still a lot of water that needs to flow under the bridge before we get clarity on this. But it is interesting that 2023 is when changes are likely to be impacted. But yet, Ireland's corporation tax take is projected to continue to grow. I suppose if you were a policymaker here and you had that sort of view of the world, well, why would you bother focusing on the SME sector? We have yeah. the FDI but- sector... If there are no votes in it, we know what politicians will think. So it seems to me that what we've concluded is that although the political economy of the budget wasn't as smart or as clever as you would have liked from the coalition's own self-interested perspective, that's a curiosity why they why they aren't more astute politically. Uh, economically, the idea of buying the election in the way that Sinn Féin is trying to do with the, in my opinion, economically incoherent package of even more government spending, so an even bigger state, because uh, we haven't touched on that. But this is a this is big state economics that we're talking about, Ireland for the future now, that the public spending increases in recent years have been baked in, they're not going to be reversed, they're go- and the only debate we're having is the extent to which they're going to be increased. And Sinn Féin are saying we're not going to cut taxes for anybody, uh, we're going to raise them, in fact, for anybody that earns a decent sum of money, and we're going to be doing lunatic things like abolishing property taxes and not doing the carbon tax increase. And so my conclusion for all of that, Jim, is if, if if Ireland falls for that, then you deserve everything that you're going to get. And what you're going to get is a divided society, as, as I said earlier on, just like the United States and the United Kingdom. And it will be a great shame for you, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree totally. And um, you mentioned the word big state. Looking out over those five-year projections again, the one thing you can be certain of is that the state is going to get a lot bigger because the the increased spending that happened over the last 18 months justifiably on the back of the COVID challenge, uh, there is no attempt made over the next five years to roll that back. In fact, you know, it's, it's a ratcheting effect 
And that spending is now becoming embedded in the system. And we've always said that, I guess, that once committed to, it is really difficult to roll back from public spending commitments. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. So let's face it, in five years time, the state is going to be significantly bigger in this country. And the problem, of course, with all of that spending is it's the quantity of spending. It's not the quality. Um, There is no attempt made in all of these spending plans to try and improve the efficiency of the delivery of public services. Um, And in fact, if you look at the health sector over the last 10 or 15 years, there has been exponential growth in spending on healthcare. Okay, um, and, and has the quality of healthcare improved as a result of that? No, it hasn't. There is no attempt whatsoever made to, in my view, improve the efficiency of the delivery of public services. And of course, the problem is all of this expenditure is being paid for by either borrowing or by taxpayers, you know, people who work, um, entrepreneurs who create businesses and generate profits and so on. Uh, you cannot run indefinitely uh, a society or an economy on that basis. Okay, Jim, I think it's time to call it there. That's a, a very interesting discussion. We'll call that the political economy of the budget, I think. Yeah, I, I guess, Chris, there, there's enough analysis out there of all the different measures yesterday, but uh, the politics of it, as you say, is absolutely fascinating. And I look forward to the first opinion poll in the aftermath of the budget just to test our theories this morning in terms of the political impact. It will be interesting to observe. So I look forward to that. Okay, thank you, Jim. Thanks, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.